Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio manager Joe Overdevest joins us today to discuss the Canadian equity market across sectors, as well as providing an update on Fidelity Global Natural Resources Fund. Joe co-manages Global Natural Resources alongside Darren Lekkerker and is also sub-portfolio manager on Fidelity Canadian Asset Allocation Fund and Fidelity Inflation Focused Fund. With host Pamela Ritchie today, Joe shares what he is seeing during this earnings season, which includes a look at the possible direction for valuations, as well as both oil and natural gas prices. Joe reiterates the Fidelity research process and how high-quality companies are identified and chosen for his funds. Joe also touts the benefits of compounding over time. Also today, among other topics, Joe reflects on inflation, energy, lithium, copper, and how nuclear factors into the overall energy discussion. He'll also share what his top questions are for CEOs in his upcoming trips to both Texas and Alberta. Today's podcast was recorded on May 3rd, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. It is earnings time. Um, What do you say to investors that, you know, I mean, it's fair to say a lot of people have a little bit of the nerves going on these days. No, I I think we're all sympathetic, uh, Pamela. The biggest thing with investing, though, is often people get fretted about what exact point you want to enter. They always want 5%, 10% cheaper. And when you look over time, compounding in great companies or just compounding in the market, it's less about that exact 5 or 10% lower. It's really that you own a great company with a strong return on equity, has a great business. And the benefit of compounding over time usually erases exactly the, the, the noise of where you start at. And so often in these times, which we'll talk about, there is some headwinds for sure, but usually with these times, great companies become bigger companies and better companies. They take advantage of it. They make acquisitions. They invest for the future. In particular, right now, private equity is pulling back. So a lot of the M&A potential for some of these companies with a great balance sheet has gotten better. And especially with credit being tougher to find and more costly. That's so interesting. As you say, the, this discussion of scale um, in in markets where you know things are are a bit tricky and the cost of capital has gone up. Let's let's just go over sort of the sectors that you look at across Canada. The cost of capital has gone up, obviously. Give us a bit of the lay of the land. We've we've been watching this over the last year. Where where do a lot of sectors, or is it a sector story? Is it really a company specific story at this point? Would you say? Well, I think that the cost of capital is probably affecting more of the financials and just highly levered companies. So, you know, the financials, uh, I'm sure it's on everyone's minds with the banking sector, right? So when you have the cost of financing going up, you know, it just in, in general, you see banking globally, they're lending a little less. And in some cases, the debate is the credit being tougher to find almost is doing some of the work of the Fed because it's pulling back on lending, which actually, you know, dampens economic growth. And so I think what's unique and, you know, we'll bring this up is obviously regional bank crisis with what's going on in the U.S. And, you know, 
sometimes you might say, well, does that help or hurt our Canadian banks? And, you know, I think obviously is that what's unique about banking industry is all interconnected, right? So when a, when a competitor doesn't do well, depending on how big a size they are, it does affect you. Whereas normally like a rail, a rail doesn't do well, the other rail benefits, they get the business. When a bank doesn't do well and it's a major size, guess what? Everyone in the ecosystem, because they all lend to each other, starts pulling back because all of a sudden the funding becomes a little tougher and the knock-on effect is usually slower economic growth. So I think lending in general being tighter is a headwind, particular for the banks. Okay. And then there's sort of that story that you hear, well, because we only have five or six, depending on yeah. how you want to look at, um, they're just more regulated. It's a more regulated system. It's, it's got more of a Fortress Canada feel. Just, just kind of discuss that in light of, again, the, the year we've had in terms of interest rate rises. Yeah, I think uh, definitely the, you, you can see the benefit of how we're regulated here in Canada. When you look at the regional banks, especially in the U.S., very different rules. And some of those rules are now being talked about the Wall Street Journal, why these banks are failing. And, you know, definitely their Canadian banks have a lot more rules of what they have to show essentially investors of mark-to-market accounting. And he, here's our balance sheet in very real time when they report. I think what's happening, though, with the Canadian banks in general is that right now is that you're, it's not really a balance sheet issue. Uh, we're watching very closely probably commercial real estate. Um, but really is just an earnings uh, slowdown potential. If you have credit being tougher, you have mortgage rates going higher, mortgage or loan growth is slowing a little bit on the margin, even just uh, some of their businesses, wealth management, investment banking, slowing a little bit. They're seeing definitely some headwinds on the earnings side, but themselves generally pretty good, very good balance sheets, but probably are you seeing some maybe degradation or at least headwinds for them on the earnings side. When, when you listen to some of the earnings, Canada's earnings season is a little, it's, you know, slightly different calendar to the U.S., but, you know, what's okay on the earnings front? What, what when you sort of see and listen to the comments and obviously look at the results, like, what are you okay with? It's a tr- maybe a tricky time. So what holds yeah. up? Look, I think earnings season right now, you're, you're feeling, when you talk to CEOs and we often talk to them on uh, the public calls and hear from the public calls and talk to them afterward, is it's a subdued environment. We, you and I have to use this word before, animal spirits. Well, animal spirits is not really there yet. Because even companies that are not changing their guidance, saying everything's fine, they're, they're worried, right? Because they see the headlines. They see that people are being a little more cautious. You hear comments like in the tech land, um, we're still closing deals, but the pipeline's a little slower. If it takes three months, it's now taking four or five months because guess what? The animal spirits aren't there. The board of directors, the CEO, whatever, who's making that final decision on a merger, on a doing a deal, on just doing a buying a software deal, just a little more cautious, right? And so, and definitely with the credit moving, it's a little knock-on effects in certain spaces. But I think right now, if you're just not lowering your numbers, you're doing okay. But but sadly, there is some companies definitely lowering numbers. They're seeing a change. And on the margin, I, they would say, if I summarize it, corporations are a little more cautious on big projects. The individual consumer is still doing pretty decent, but you're seeing definitely a little less on the spending than maybe they were before. And part of it is they're getting, you know, their paycheck. A big part of it is being still eaten away by inflation because the year-over-year comps are still pretty tough, especially for food. Yeah, yeah, they really are. It's, it's, it's uh, that story is just not changing, is it? Um, just talk a little bit about the energy story right now. We'll dig into resources story generally. We're obviously seeing oil down today. Um, a few different reasons for that. It, it sometimes beats to different drums. Um, tell us what you see on the resource side of things for the Canadian story. Yeah. 
I think on the on resources, we'll start with energy. You know, why is energy down? I think it's showing a lot what's going on in the market. You know, the market is up, which is a really you know usually it's a great thing when you. Uh, dig down, you're seeing it's really a lot of large caps. The small caps are generally underperforming. And even the sectors more recently, especially your utilities, staples, and to your point, energy is actually coming off. So normally, if you want a bull cycle, you want small caps doing well, you want you know resources doing well. And, and the, these, these indicators are showing you definitely some weakness on the global economic growth. So that's oil. But they actually, that's the demand side. Supply side, still no major response. The oil companies are reporting no one's really growing. Maybe the Permian producers, which is again, Texas and the US are growing maybe three to 5%. But again, you're seeing the majors as well, not growing much, they're being told dividends and buybacks. Though it's an interesting story in the very short term, you're seeing some obviously demand headwinds. But when you look at next few years, if demand holds in, there really isn't a supply response on the energy side. On the metal side, I would say, you're definitely seeing more demand on the copper side in terms of you know, you have a lot of these big copper major players, they have great balance sheets, mergers and acquisitions, as the Canadian investors here know, happened a few years ago back in 06, 07 time period, have really been put on hold. And there's definitely a demand for copper and nickel in particular because of, you know, the transition for energy. I could, you know, you could, the recipe is there for more mergers and acquisitions for sure. Well, so let's bring the cost of capital into, into some of those stories. So getting things out of the ground in this case, we're talking about metals and mining, um, is it's going to go up. Um, how are suppliers to the overall story for, for metals and mining? I think we've heard from a couple of big resource firms uh, recently. Like, what, what is the story there for them? What are they grappling with? They're still grappling with inflation. Uh, inflation with people or just getting goods and, and, and equipment is still up year over year. So that's still tough. Um, I think the biggest thing that, you know, if you actually talk to them, they feel that's maybe more transitory is just the structural issues or is secular issues is governments. When you look in the, you know, you pull a world map out and you say, okay, where, where are we going to grow copper? Some of those regions are not very politically friendly to you coming in. And I think that's what they're really seeing, especially probably in South America. Um, there's very, probably more left-sided uh, politics than there was in the past. And, uh, you know, there's some, you know, scary things being said, like, okay, we might nationalize the lithium mines. Well, you know, that's not a great environment for investing. So I, I actually think that's the bigger issue is that, you know, are, will certain governments say, okay, we're going to help the solution? Because that's the other thing too. A lot of these solutions are not in North America. Well, North America wants copper, wants nickel, and they're not there. So, you know, how are you going to help them? And like, what 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 benefit do you have unless you get some taxes? But maybe you say, you know what? No offense, that's your problem. We're not going to try to help you electrify the grid. You know, we don't want this big, you know, open pit in in maybe you know an area that's very forested and very nice. Bring in the discussion of EVs because that's a big piece of the story ultimately the, for why the demand is going to go up and why it's going to be maybe a different story sort of geographically. Um, are there different players, buyers, for instance, uh, of the metals and mining? I mean, you know, we think of Elon Musk and he was apparently tapping into sort of the metals and mining sector, all, all just cutting out sort of the middle pieces himself. What do you see on that front? How, how does that actually get fleshed out over the years to come? It's a great question. You go back in history, Pamela, is that you'll see sometimes you can tell when things are tight and when things are tight, you know, governments start getting involved and actually the supply chain above you starts getting involved because it what it means is people start getting worried. And so, again, back to this audience here, 
pre-2008, you saw countries like China actually look to Canada to buy oil. It was a strategic asset, right? They wanted to own it. And to your point right now is copper, nickel, lithium, other metals like that. You're seeing actually now GM is investing in lithium mines directly. Like that's that's a pretty eye-opening. That's big. That's big, right? And these are big checks. And it but it shows the scarcity of of they're looking at of the next two years going, oh my, we may actually get the car right, we may get the marketing right, but we can't supply. And the easiest wake-up call they had was with chips, right? Which is actually a whole new battle itself as well internationally that, you know, where are these chips being supplied by? And so I, I do think that, you know, the Tesla's of the world, the GM's of the world, whoever it may be, I think are looking more down the chain. And that's really interesting because usually that brings down actually your cost of capital because you now it's someone who's, who's that desperate. And sometimes they will outbid normally just the strategic players that would bid for that. Definitely for sure, I would, I would help if you are have a lithium mine or copper mine, you need a partner. Definitely, you have a lot more options than you did before, again, which brings the lower cost of capital, which incentivizes supply. So tell us just a little bit, it's going a bit far out perhaps into the future, but just sort of get a sense of what valuations may do, or at least the directions they might go in, if there are different types of demands put on the mines, the you know those that are running the mines, uh, the producers, if they've got different... Uh, bedfellows, if you will. Um, how does that change the valuation picture or how could it change the valuation picture? Well, again, in the past, we had the last kind of big bull cycle of 2000, pre-2008, you know, the cost of capital went down pretty low. And again, some of the buyers were, were sovereign wealth or, you know, countries right. who said like, well, it doesn't really matter as much the cost of capital, we just need it. And it, it, because it's the, 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 to the, essentially the health of our economy, health of our country going forward. So, if you're looking at GM and Ford and they look at, or Tesla and they say, you know what, when we actually look at the metal in this car, if we can't produce the car, well, you know, what, what kind of profits are we losing? You have a different argument, right? Because and it, it, to them, it's just a small piece of the, the actual input. It's one input cost, but so strategic, you could see some, you know, cost of capital equations that don't make sense. We used to learn in university, like, you know, hey, it should be around this range and it's not making sense. But to them, it's, if they don't do this, they may not be able to operate at the level they want to operate at. So it's like, it's a lesser of two evils for them. And more importantly to them, it's not, in some cases, it's not as much material to that company. When you're a copper company, that's all you think about. To them, it's like, we just need it. Much like that chips, we just need it. So you, we have seen that historically, yes. And again, it's actually positive. If you actually do want to do this transition, you want the lowest cost of capital possible. And that's why governments come in, they give tax incentives. Again, you're seeing information, Inflation Protection Act coming in, obviously, Reduction Act was a big part of that. If you want to drive this transition, all these things uh, benefit. When you look at the supply lines across, so we get we get to the story of, of um, I don't know what we want to call it. There's a different type of globalization, shall we say, because everything sounds negative. But are supply lines across North America essentially being redrawn? I mean... We've been talking about um, railway tracks that, that go from Mexico to Canada for years now. But I mean, are you really starting to see that pick up? I was going to say pick up steam. That's such a bad <laughs> pun. But I mean, is that moving in a different way now? North, south, for instance, more of that? I think, again, you and I have talked about this over the last few years. I think the, this transition of, of globalization being maybe less global or onshoring or changing of your supply chains. It is moving. It's just a slow battleship, but it's definitely moving. And I think 
a wake-up call was probably COVID. And the number two wake-up call probably was the Ukraine crisis. And just watching how countries reacted and also how certain countries didn't react, maybe. And then all of a sudden, it just maybe, who's my friends? Who's my enemies? And more importantly is, even if they think they're my friend, but like if all of a sudden something happens, are, there, are we going to be cut off, right? And so I definitely see that on the margin, we're seeing more stuff come into North America. And I think actually in particular, what you're seeing as well is uh, the Information Reduction Act, you're seeing a lot more actually spending, uh, especially for EV vehicles. And I think that's what's interesting is I don't think if you look back at you know the last few years, no one would have thought U.S. would leapfrog everybody for when it comes to this transition for energy. It was always Europe was leading, Europe was leading, Canada was doing decent, but then U.S. leapfrogged everybody was with these recent incentives. And it's really driving a lot of growth because it's, it's a massive benefit to companies. It's making some of our allies cross, too. We're getting a few. Um, well, I mean, the, the overall story is that, as you say, leapfrogging, no one expected that. So that, that's sort of coming through. Let's pull back, look a, a little bit into the shorter term of this question. Um, Joe, what do you see for oil and natural gas prices for the balance of this year? Yeah, I think oil is the biggest linchpin will be demand. It's not really a supply issue, but it, we're seeing slower demand. I mean, we have to respect that, you know, global GDP is under pressure and it, essentially almost essential bankers on the world, you know, they can't really say this in blunt terms. They want it, you know, to come down a little bit because if you want to fight inflation, the big buckets, of course, have been supply chain, um, commodities and labor. Well, the first two are coming off. The labor is the toughest thing. You need the slow GDP growth. And oil is essentially, just like any other commodity, very much driven by that. I would say oil, the supply demand, though, is tighter, looks like, than natural gas. For this audience here, natural gas definitely looks looser. We look at the actual supply, that, especially in North America, historically, it's very high. And so what happens with natural gas, a unique um, commodity, is that we actually run out of storage. When, when oil, we have too much. We just send it on ships and we go somewhere else. But the yeah. ga <laughs> gas actually has what they call LNG is the maybe the only outlet. And so usually if you get to essentially probably fall time and you're at full capacity, hypothetically, you can see that's where, you, you know, you and I have done these calls. You see these weird prices like natural gas will go to zero. Now it will be temporary, but it shows that the, the, the problem when you have too much supply, which we generally have more supply in natural gas than we do oil. Yeah, fascinating. Okay, um, so again, following up with uh, with metals in demand and short supply, um, now are commodities a good alternative investment? Alternative investment, I guess, is a is again. A, I mean, a, a few different things. It gave yeah. me a few different things these days. I, I would say that you know when we look at maybe assets. I think what you're trying to you know this person's trying to ask is you know how's the secular supply demand as opposed to maybe just you know the cyclical. Cyclical copper can go up and go down. We all know that. But yes, when you look at the next few years, there's definitely some secular argument. And I think, to be honest, one of the biggest things would be, what if somehow technology changes? Because that's a change in oil. It looks secularly really tight. And then all of a sudden, one of the biggest things was uh, horizontal drilling. And we, you know, we actually do work on this. Right now, it seems tough to see that big technological change with mining. But again, I, I never like to bet against, you know, people having great ideas, you know, and especially when there's a lot of money on the table, a lot of eyeballs will be there. Maybe there's a technological change. OK, but right now that you when you have the big, you know, stumbling blocks is especially politics. Unless that changes quite drastically, the areas where we need copper are non friendly areas. And the other one is just like we said, is politics. On the other side, you have major G7 countries who want to electrify the grid. So those. 
whenever you see probably like a step lunch, what you were saying, the step change in cost of capital, which generally is a step change in a higher multiple and tighter kind of supply demand and higher prices, you see these forces come together and they want instant change, but you can't have instant change because of, you know, the mines take five, well, probably these days, 10 years to come on. And so we saw this last cycle, demand will go fast and the actual supply will come on later, which will definitely lead to a bottleneck and generally higher prices. Um, you mentioned the Permian, I think, earlier, and uh, you're actually going to meet uh, CEOs in, in Texas, or I think you told me. Told yes. Me. So, yeah, yeah we- you and I in our conversation, I'm going to uh, Texas to meet CEOs from, you know, the big ones to the little ones, uh, end of May. What's, Calgary your top or- question? What's your top question? I think our top question, right, well, a few questions would be, always very insightful meetings was, you know, how's, I was actually like, I was like, liking saying in the beginning, how's business? Just let them talk because you'd be surprised how many people you just get in their questions, get in the details, or tell me about the Permian, tell me about the client rates, all this. And you just, you know, this is a CEO or CFO who's, you're giving you an hour of their time, let them answer because you'd also be surprised how they answer. And they could say, Pamela, fine. And just like lean back and stare at you. Okay, let's do, that's a body read that maybe things aren't fine. Or they just talk like, oh, I'm super excited about this, this expiration here. You know, this this here is we're doing so well in terms of execution. Let them talk. But when we get into nitty gritty, probably in the biggest sense of capital allocation, a lot of these oil companies have probably seven to twelve to fifteen percent free cash yield. That's the amount of cash divided by the market cap coming to them. So what do they do with it? Dividends and buybacks, because this is the part of the cycle where potentially mergers and acquisitions happen. And you'll see some companies will do smart deals, and some say some will not, and they'll destroy you know capital. And so. You know, then you, you dig into, okay, if you do a deal, you know, what are your hurdle rates? What do you want to get to? Is, you know, something strategic you're missing? Is there an asset you're missing? Just trying to understand, again, how they think uh, would be very important. And I think lastly is politics. I think it's very important, too, to hear, like, you know, how are they feeling? Are they feeling comfortable about growing in what regions in the U.S. or in Canada? Because I think that's a big stumbling block right now. So capital allocation and, and what they're viewing of political safeness in certain regions. That's fascinating. Okay, so we'll have to catch up with you after the trip <laughs> with some of the with some of the responses or whatever you can share with us. Um, you mentioned, we went through financials and then, and then mentioned a bit on real estate. Can we come back to the real estate question? Um, I see conflicting messages regarding real estate. What What are your views on this sector? I think, well, actually I'll do both. Real estate, probably people are asking about is like Canadian real estate or homes, which actually drives more, uh, you know, the Canadian banks, in particular in our Canadian economy. I think that is interesting in that you, you can see, you know, what the, the central bankers, of course, in Canada versus the Fed, they paused early. And actually we're seeing is more activity. As soon as they paused, people felt comfortable and there was a little more activity. Obviously price adjusts because of our cost of capital, mortgages in particular have gone up. The prices adjust, activities lower, but it's actually picking up a little bit. Now, again, I would say that I think we just have to, you know, have some caution. There's a big move in rates in terms of the magnitude and the speed in North America, especially in Canada. And these these rates in particular reset every five years. That's a headwind for the Canadian consumer and a knock-on effect for the Canadian mortgages. But the biggest thing that's, you know, one of the biggest things is still immigration. It's very, very strong in Canada. And it's a big driver of it. We Canadian talk about the Canadian REITs, which is actually more industrial you know, office and retail, you're definitely some headwinds. Office is still uh, some interesting things. You have a lot of people who put, put a lot of debt on some of these offices. And again, we talk about secular trends. One of the secular trends, I'm in the office today, but guess what? A lot of people in Toronto are not on a five-day week basis. And so that's a secular trend 
And then that was not underwritten when they did these loans, right? It was underwritten at, okay, at a different time. And again, that's a tough thing too. You underwrite something forever and all of a sudden a secular change happens. It can be very pragmatic. And so, um, or problematic. I would say on the REITs in general, though, the other thing you have to watch is their cost of capital is going up. And so when you talk to the REITs, they're not feeling as comfortable as they were before because everyone's just trying to figure out what are the actual values because cost of capital went up so high that you're actually seeing transactions almost, you know, pause in a major effect, figuring out price discovery. So interesting, the price discovery story right now. And, and again, what, what it is after some will say there were bubbles in the market for a long, long time. Um, so. What is the, going back to the interest rate story, Canada pausing a little earlier, um, the discussion around that is where you kind of end up with inflation. And I guess just ask your views on inflation and then ultimately what, what that means. I mean, does inflation get down as far as it needs to? Yeah, I think, again, we've had some great speakers on like uh, Jeff Moore and such like that explaining, obviously, that. You know, the, the first drop down is, I think he used the green slopes is the easiest part of inflation, right? <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it's 200 basis points, 100 basis. Those are like the first few are easier. We can, again, the big buckets, you got, you know, uh, commodities, you have supply chain. Those are kind of like, a lot of those are getting better. The labor is the toughest one. And where we are right now is the toughest part. And I think Canada's paused early. The Fed obviously will make their decision. And I think this is the tough thing is so is the market wants to see pause and then cuts because if we all the market loves cuts, but that's where it could be like we pause and the market maybe potentially will the big debate will be how long do they pause, right? Because if all of a sudden inflation is still sticky, especially labor, and again, labor, one of the toughest things is stats will show tough for the fine people, right? So you have one bucket that's driving is that the labor participation rate has changed the last few years. There's less people in the workforce. So that's not a good thing for that stickiness of inflation. And number two is you forget, you look at all these numbers, but you know, we take a step back, there's still human beings hiring these people and they have emotions. And they just went through the last three years, they couldn't find people, right? And that was like, you know, think of like Tim Hortons had to cut their hours. So think of how much revenue you're losing because you, just, you can't keep the store open or the restaurant open. So they're gonna be slow to say, Oh, okay, we won't hire too much or won't pay too much for labor. They'll probably just, um, you know, psychologically, they don't want to go back to that old way of like, I was actually losing revenue because I didn't have labor. So this is, you know, definitely, you know, we're kind of, we're in the pause phase, but this is where it's really tough. And this is where I think some people want to say like, why is these central bankers saying it's data, it's uh, you know, data uh, dependent? Cause it is, we're in a very unique situation. There's a lot of changes happening. And they have to see how this reacts. And if inflation doesn't come down, it's very tough to see how, you know, you can just Olson see cuts. Yeah, it's really fascinating, as you say. So I don't know if this is the, yeah, black diamonds or what they are. But um, anyway, it's, it's, the, it's the more difficult bit. You started out telling us, um, it just reminding us that sort of the compounding story often doesn't have a lot to do with the timing. And a lot of people are concerned about the timing right now. So I wonder if we just go back to that and remind us about good, bigger companies and uh, mm -hmm. essentially if that's how you position. Yeah, I think you look at the best of breed and that's the thing too, we, we, we as investors, at least on behalf of our clients, we're trying to own the best companies. We're not trying to own the market. And so again, we've reviewed some of these sectors. Say some of these sectors will see headwinds, some of the companies within each sector will do well and some will do poorly. Is again, when you look back, you usually see some, some great opportunities. And if you look back, even long charts of the market, or even long charts of individual stocks, 
you know, it's tough somebody to say like, oh, I forgot there was that that noise, that issue, that that you know the, there, and you know you get compounding. You know, usually time is on your side, but a lot of times people will fret and stress, which is for obvious reasons. But you make sure you don't lose the opportunity. That what is your ultimate goal? If it's a compound capital, you know, puts time on your side. So, Joe, is there an opportunity for stranded? I mean, that's an interpretation, but stranded energy sources in Canada to get to market and they're putting in parentheses, i.e. hydro in Northern Ontario. I mean, do you, do you hear more about this? Is this a time for these types of projects to be built? I, th I think, you know, it's interesting that the governments want to incentivize this. So this is the time to do it. And you, and maybe your project didn't make sense economically before. This is a time potentially you could add some more incentive incentives, especially if it's green, especially if it's friendly. Again, you and I have been talking about this, so I'll you know, throw in another one, nuclear. Nuclear last few years, no one really talked about nuclear. Guess what? When all of a sudden you want to electrify or, or bring down carbon, now Ontario and other provinces are talking about nuclear. And so it's amazing when you get pushed to say a certain goal, you go through the list of all the solutions and solutions weren't being done before now being turned over for sure. Yeah, so time to, to be looking for opportunities. Joe Overdose, thank you for sharing your time with us and uh, taking us through um, what everyone needs to know sort of in this landscape. and. and the timing and no timing and uh, what a long time horizon can do. Thanks for your time. Thanks a lot, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.